Coming up on Tech News Weekly, Reed Albergati of Semaphore stops by to talk about the Google Gemini controversy and how a company makes changes to its generative AI system to try and improve upon those wild responses that it was giving. Then, our first story of the week, Apple's Project Titan. It's time to say goodbye to that Apple Car future. Well, at least for now. Afterwards, Carissa Bell of Engadget stops by to explain Biden's executive order on the sale of our personal information to specific countries. We talk about what's involved, who is going to be in charge of making sure that it's enforced, and a little bit about what you can do to protect your privacy online. Lastly, we round things out with a story about video doorbells that have poor security and yet are sold all across the web. Stay tuned for this episode of Tech News Weekly. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Tech News Weekly, episode 326, recorded Thursday, February 29th, 2024. Google's Gemini goes awry. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Ecamm, the leading live streaming and video production studio built for Mac. Whether you're a beginner or an expert, Ecamm is here to elevate your video production. From streaming and recording to podcasting and presenting, Ecamm Live is your all-in-one video tool perfect for simplifying your workflow. Ecamm Live includes support for multiple cameras and screen sharing. Plus, the live camera switcher lets you direct your show in real time. And we use Ecamm every week for iOS today. Plus, I've used it for a lot of personal projects. It is an incredibly powerful tool that helps me create an entire show all in one app on my Mac. It's amazing. You can stand out from the crowd with high-quality video, add logos, titles, lower thirds, graphics, share your screen, drop in video clips, bring on interview guests, use a green screen, and so much more. And it's all happening within the app. Join the thousands of worldwide entrepreneurs, marketers, professionals, podcasters, educators, musicians, and other Mac users who rely on Ecamm Live daily. Get one month free when you subscribe to any of Ecamm's plans. Visit ecamm.com slash twit and use the promo code TWIT twit at checkout. Hello and welcome to Tech News Weekly, the show where every week we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. I am your host, Micah Sargent, and we've got a great show planned for you today. We're kicking off the show with AI. Yes, it is probably what you've come to expect here on Tech News Weekly, because every week there are AI stories. So, of course, we're going to talk about them on this show. Uh, Joining me to talk about what's going on over at Google... It is Semaphore's own Reed Albergati. Welcome back to the show, Reed. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Good to have you. So first things first, before we actually talk about Google's response to the controversy, we have to talk about the controversy itself. Can you tell us about what happened with Gemini? Yeah, you may have seen this. So Gemini is Google's new, uh, you know, high-powered AI model that competes with uh, GPT-4. It can create images and text and got in trouble last week when some of the images it was creating just didn't quite seem right. So they would take uh, historical figures who were white and replace them with people of color, or it would refuse to generate images of white people altogether. And so this had people scratching their heads um, and of course, accusing Google of being woke. And what it really was, was 
you know, Google, Google attempting like, like all companies pretty much uh, creating these, these LLM chatbots, um, trying to sort of keep them in line and keep them from doing embarrassing things. Um, ironically, it was that effort that actually uh, led to this mistake and, and created an even more embarrassing mess for Google. And, and the controversy kind of spilled into earlier this week when people found that the text generation part of Gemini was also, you know, doing weird things. Like someone asked it uh, to compare, you know, who had had a worst, Im- worst impact on society. Was it Elon Musk or Adolf Hitler? And Gemini said, well, they've both done some bad things. Um, it's hard to say who's worse. I mean, Whoa. it's it's been uh, it's been tough a tough week for um, for Google. They lost on Monday ninety billion dollars in market cap just based off of this controversy. So, uh, you know, it's it that that's a, that essentially is it in a nutshell. Okay, interesting. Um, I mean, so there's there's the controversy. Uh, everybody can take that for what they will. Let's talk about uh, Google and more specifically Sundar Pichai's response. What did Pichai have to say about those problematic responses and generations? Yeah, so um, you know Sundar sent an email out to staff on um, a couple couple nights ago, uh, basically saying this is unacceptable. We've totally messed up. We're going to make structural changes to how we manage, um, you know, product development. We're, you know, we're making progress on this issue. We'll, we'll have some results, you know, out there soon. Um, so, you know, he's essentially saying a bit of a mea culpa and look, we, you know, we're going to fix this problem. Um, that, that's the response. I think there's a, there's a narrative now and a public relations problem for Google, um, where, you know, Sundar looks like he's having trouble sort of controlling the, the culture of Google. Um, you know, I'm, I, I sort of see that more as a PR problem than an actual business or technology problem. Um, but that's kind of the, the, the latest out there. Uh, yeah. Uh, interesting. Uh, you know, the response there, I think is what one would expect, obviously, but, um, kind of trying to, toe the line between we're fixing this and also uh, say, look, this is, we, we recognize this as bad, but also at the same time trying to say that, uh, you know, don't worry too much. It's going to be, it's going to be okay. We're going to get this uh, ironed out. Now, how does a company actually go about fixing uh, a generative AI tool? If, if it's, you know, if suddenly the tool starts misbehaving, what is the process of of getting it to you know do what it's supposed to do again? And uh, from you know your own research and understanding, is that something that takes a long time? Is that something that can happen quickly? What what uh, what happens when the alarm bells start ringing there? Yeah, I mean, I think first just we should take a step back and sort of explain how these things work. I mean, these models like Gemini or GPT four, they start out. I mean. GPT, you know, stands for uh, generalized pre-trained uh, model. So they're they it's a pre-trained model, and when it comes out, it's it's very raw. It's been trained on you know the entire internet, possibly synthetic data, and you know that includes video and text and all sorts of things, right? And it's drawn, you know, it's it's created this ability, this amazing ability to predict the next word or predict what image you're you're trying to generate. And then, and then spit something out that seems remarkably like what a human might do. And those models are so raw when they come out. 
they have all the bad stuff and the good stuff that's out there in the world, out there in the internet. And that includes, you know, bias, you know, race, like outright racism, um, you know, borderline, like probably, probably actual, actual child pornography, right. Or CSAM as, as we call it today. And it really needs to be kept in check, especially for these public companies um, or companies like OpenAI that really care about their, their public reputation Um, or they're going to, you know, allow people to do stuff that's totally inappropriate. And then, of course, you know, those people will then, some of them will post it on the internet and say, look how bad this stuff is, and the whole thing's going to get shut down. So you do this process of, you know, reinforcement learning with human feedback, essentially training the model over again, um, putting a sort of layer of training on top of it, telling it, don't do these things. Or, or you know, in the case of bias, like, you know, if you're gonna, if somebody asks you to create an image of a doctor, don't create white men 100% of the time. Throw in some women and people cut, make it look like, you know, the the real world here. And these models don't think they're not they're not people. They don't they're not actually intelligent, right? Mm-hmm. Even though we call them artificial intelligence, so it's really hard to get them to do what you want them to do. And so I think that just takes expertise and time. I'm sure that Google can figure that out. That is not the that part of it is not the sort of like fundamental AI breakthrough that makes this stuff possible. That's more like the work that needs to go into uh, training it. And I think it's a function of just companies like Google being pushed by the release of ChatGPT to come out with this this stuff so quickly and show that they're they're you know on top of their game. Um, and I'm rambling here, but I mean I think another thing that's really ironic is that I mean Google invented this the underlying technology, the transformer model that made all this stuff possible. They had this stuff probably before anyone else. And the reason they didn't release it is exactly this because they knew that it's, it's a, it's hard to predict. It's hard to, to keep under control and it could lead to embarrassing reputational damage for the company. Absolutely. And I mean, we've seen, these tools uh, being criticized for bias in the other direction. Uh, I remember even, it seems like it's been so long ago now, Microsoft's uh, little chatbot suddenly becoming a mm-hmm. horribly racist uh, bot. And, you know, that's that's gone on. We have, have from there... It seems like, you know, what you were talking about, the training says, don't always create doctors that are white. Don't always create... Um, these these different things that sort of stick out. And uh, I remember a number of AI tools for doing photo generation would almost always, when they were generating uh, female presenting individuals, they almost always were scantily clad, that kind of thing. And it sounds like this tuning that you just talked about as a way to kind of fix it, do you think that's kind of what put, what happened in the first place that it just somehow went over the top of what it was supposed to do. That seems very difficult, I guess is what I'm saying. It's, it it seems difficult to get these systems to find a balance because they can kind of take something and run with it almost. Is that the case? Yeah, I think, I think it is difficult and I, I think it's possible. I mean, we've seen, I think OpenAI do a pretty good job of keeping it, of, of improving it over time but they've had more time and they've had more runway, right? Because they're not Google. I think they're they're able to make some more mistakes um, and sort of 
learn from the public, uh, you know, public feedback and, and, and keep improving on that. They're, they've been doing that work. For Google, it's, they've had less time and they also don't have as much of a margin for error. So, and I, I don't know this to be the case, but I, I also almost wonder if Google felt there was even more risk in possibly having those bias results or those results that might blow up in their face one day that they they maybe pushed a little too hard on on the the reinforcement learning aspect of it and that's what led to this right like whereas it's a I think it's a very subtle art and I don't think these things will ever large language models you know they're just never going to get to the point where they're perfect right they're not going to be at, at least with the technology we have today I think the technology will improve and there may be more breakthroughs in the future, but they're always going to hallucinate mm-hmm. people who know what they're doing, who, you know, prompt engineers will always get them, you know, be able to get them to go off the rails or do something they're totally not supposed to do. Um, that that's just always going to be a problem. So that was actually kind of my last question there. If there was that Goldilocks solution, you know, can, do you foresee uh, AI getting it just right? It sounds like, almost because of the human element, that's just not something that's possible, um, at least as the technology exists right now. And that that's kind of the, the, the impression that I got too, because even if you have something that uh, to the wide swath of humanity is the ideal, there are still going to be extremes on either side that say that it does this too much or it doesn't do that enough. It's sort of a, a what, a sliding scale kind of, yeah? Yeah, I think we'll get there. I just don't think it's going to be with doing exactly the same methods that we're doing now, but just making the models better or doing doing you know reinforcement learning better. I think it's going to take new methods, mm-hmm. and people are working on those methods. If you look at what Meta's doing, I think it's really interesting where they're trying to create these you know models, smaller ones that are really good at one task and sort of tying them all together. Um, it's part of this sort of world model uh, idea that Jan LeCun is the head of AI, you know, AI over there. Um, there's, there are a lot of different ideas and I think we will get there. Um, but it's just, it's going to take new, new techniques. I think the other thing that's sort of interesting here is that, you know, of course this is, this has become, you know, this is now like beyond technology, beyond the technology story, right? It's on Fox news. They're talking about, the woke Silicon Valley tech companies. It's sort of a, a continuation of this content moderation debate that we've had, you know, in the wake of the, the 2016 election. Um, there are people who believe that there shouldn't be any reinforcement. I mean, or, you know, there, there really shouldn't be any attempt to make these things, you know, act and behave in this, in this sort of societally acceptable way. You should just let them, you know, do what they do and trust that users are going to to use them correctly, mm. right? And of course, of course, you know you can be on either side of that debate, but that debate will be there, I think, for some time. And it does, I think, by by you know making these things quote unquote safe, I think you do start losing some capability. We've we've seen evidence of that. Oh, absolutely, right. And I think people miss that, right? Like even if you believe, like, yeah, I mean, I I'm all for, you know, all the diversity and all the stuff that the right would call woke, right? Um, you know, even if you're all for that, like you want that capability because you're not, 
you know, that you're not using it to, you know, I don't know, do, do things. Yeah. Well, I'm things. using it responsibly. Right. And so when I go to use the, the, the this is a good example because, uh, someone, uh, here at work who uses the tool for what we do, there was a tool that they were using for so long that worked great. And then the company instituted a number of new policies specifically around copyright and sort of trained the model on that. And then even with content that we owned, trying to get it to, you know, ingest that content, it would say, we don't have proof that you have the rights to access this content. So we suddenly can't act on it. Yeah. And that's frustrating because up to that point, it had been a great tool that we were able to use. Can't use it anymore because these Mm -hmm. uh, little blocks have been put in place. So yeah, capabilities definitely are lost and it makes sense why some of the most, um, uh, powerful uses of these tools end up being kind of the more open source, you do it locally systems where there aren't these uh, guardrails in place. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think it also sort of, it it makes me wonder whether, you know, startups and, and you know, open source companies are actually, this is how one of the advantages and one of the ways they can disrupt or unseat the incumbent tech companies because they can, they can make these mistakes or they can sort of create products that, you know, maybe, maybe they're not as exposed to the public relations hits they'll, you know, that, that will come out of, you know, the, these things producing kind of offensive, um, offensive outputs. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know. It's a it's a real conundrum, I think, for for any big company making this stuff. Absolutely. Do you do you you you're take you sort of you can't win, right? You either <laughs> yeah. you're either going to get like criticized for bias and all all of, of sorts of other horrible things, or you're going to be criticized for being too woke or holding it back and making it less capable. So. I don't know. I don't know where the line is on this stuff. Darned if you do, darned if you don't. Reed Elvergati, <laughs> I want to thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it is great always to get to chat with you. Of course, folks can head over to semaphore.com to check out your work. How do they get that newsletter, that sweet, sweet newsletter? Yeah, it's super easy. You just type in your email address um, and and we will send you a free technology newsletter twice a week, which most people seem to like. So I encourage you to do that and, and, and love when I get emails from readers, um, with feedback. So I, uh, it's a, it's a good community we're building over at Semaphore uh, Tech and hope to hear from you. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Alrighty, folks. Up next, my story of the week about a car project gone away. But first, let me take a quick break to tell you about our uh, sponsor this week. It is Delete Me, who are bringing you this episode of Tech News Weekly. Have you ever searched for your name online and you just didn't like how much of your personal information was available? I certainly have. It gives me, makes me feel gross thinking about all that information that was online before I found Delete Me. See, Delete Me helps reduce risk from identity theft, credit card fraud, robocalls, cybersecurity threats, harassment, and unwanted communication overall. We've used the tool here at Twit uh, because many of us were receiving a bunch of messages from someone pretending to be our CEO, Lisa 
Laporte. And in order to stop that from happening, uh, Delete Me was used to kind of remove a lot of that personal information that was online because those uh, bad actors, as they were, were able to go online, find kind of the flow chart, the organizational chart of the company, know who to contact and say, hey, it's me, Lisa. That's the voice that I imagine them having. I need you to bring me uh, 15 Apple gift cards. Uh, It'd be a shame if you didn't do that. And then many of us knew, no, 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 no. That's not actually Lisa. Didn't sound like her first and foremost, but also uh, we kind of have that knowledge. But you may work at a company where that's not the case. So that's where Delete Me can come in handy. The first step is to sign up and submit some basic personal information. You've got to give them the information that they should be looking for for removal. Delete Me experts will find and remove your personal information from hundreds of data brokers, helping reduce your online footprint and keeping you and your family safe. And then this is the most important part because those data brokers are going to keep finding and scooping up your information. So Delete Me will continue to scan and remove your personal information regularly. That includes addresses, photos, emails, relatives, phone numbers, social media, property value, and more. And since privacy exposures and incidents affect individuals differently, they have privacy advisors that ensure that customers have the support they need when needed. So protect yourself and reclaim your privacy by going to joindeleteme.com slash twit and using the code twit. That's joindeleteme.com slash twit with the code T-W-I-T twit for 20% off. Our thanks to Delete Me for sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly. All right, folks, if you have been saving up in your, I don't know, uh, football stadium-sized piggy bank for Apple's uh, car, then it's time to crack open that uh, big old old hog and put all that money somewhere where it can be earning interest instead. Because according to as I call him, Mark Bloomberg, Mark Gurman of Bloomberg, uh, Apple's car project is no more. Apple has long been rumored to be working on a self-driving electric vehicle. And the company seems to have not only canceled the part of the vehicle that would make it self-driving, but also canceled the part of the vehicle that is the vehicle itself. <laughs> um, it, it's kind of been a, a pivot and a shift, right? A, at first, they realized that they didn't really want to get into self-driving, but they still wanted to make an electronic vehicle. And again, of course, this is all uh, sources familiar with the matter who say this. So take this with the necessary grains of salt, uh, as it were. And now the company appears to no longer be working on the project. Uh, The project, of course, is known as Project Titan uh, to make a fully autonomous electronic vehicle. And over the years, there have been a number of issues uh, at play. We've seen uh, different leadership move from the project. Uh, We've seen the kind of market conditions change. Uh, And as you might imagine there are, as there always will be, a number of technological hurdles that the company seemingly is not interested in f- throwing further investment and attention into. Um, this has reportedly been in the works for more than a decade, and the company... Uh, when they made this decision, there were apparently, or I shouldn't say apparently, there were reportedly, allegedly, 2,000 
employees working on the project. So 2,000 people were a little caught off guard by the fact that um, that car project, Project Titan, was canceled. According to Mark Gurman, it was announced by both the chief operating officer, Jeff Williams, and also the vice president, Kevin Lynch, who were both in charge of the project. They announced that the project was no more. And many of the employees who were working on the car project uh, are now being moved to the artificial intelligence division. So it seems like the company is making a pivot toward really getting into generative AI. And this makes sense that you may be going, okay, so how can you go from a car project to AI? Well, for many of the employees who were working on the uh, electric car project, the ones that weren't specifically working on the electric car part of it all, but the ability for the vehicle to uh, navigate without a driver, that's AI. (laughs) There's a lot of artificial intelligence involved there. And so it's... It it makes sense that those employees would be shifted to, oh, shifted, that's a little bit of a pun, um, would be shifted to something that is similar in their line of work. Uh, We just heard Tim Cook say that the company is, uh, you know, has some big plans when it comes to generative AI and artificial intelligence as a whole. So there will be, of course, some layoffs um, who... You know, uh, because those employees may not be able to find other projects within the company, uh, but to what extent, we're not sure. Now, interestingly, uh, investors in the company seem to have applauded (laughs) Apple's decision to cancel this project. After the announcement was made, uh, Apple shares increased And so maybe that suggests that the investors were feeling like this was a long shot of a project that uh, was a waste of money, uh, perchance. And so it made sense to kind of move along to something else. Now, we've heard in the past that Apple had looked into purchasing uh, Tesla from Elon Musk and maybe using that as a means, a jumping off point, as it were, uh, to kind of further its own Apple car project. Uh, That famously fell through. And that is, you know, still, as far as we know, not the case that that's not happening and that the company is just completely shifting away from uh, Project Titan as a whole. Now, I didn't know this. Uh, German points out in the piece that the electric vehicle market is kind of slowing despite the fact that it, in the beginning was uh, really up and atom, uh, it's kind of slowing because of uh, high prices, but also the charging infrastructure around the country and elsewhere is not where it needs to be. And so that kind of needs to get figured out first before any kind of real saturation of electronic vehicles takes place. Uh, overall, we should see... Uh, a continued effort from the company to show its chops when it comes to generative AI, maybe even as soon as uh, WWDC, which of course takes place in the summer and the next versions of the operating systems are announced. And we shall see what is next for the company. 
Uh, as German points out, this kind of joins a few other projects, including a TV set <laughs> uh, uh, in the graveyard of Apple products, as well as the uh, multi-device multi uh, wireless charging pad that the company was rumored to be creating, I believe called AirPower. So AirPower and that Apple TV, actual TV display uh, are waiting with open arms to bring along Project Titan. So we'll keep an eye on that as things go forward. But I think ultimately, I'm excited that this means that there are more employees focusing on what Apple's going to do in the generative AI space. That should be quite fascinating. All righty. Uh, up next, I've got another interview for you. Uh, this time, we're going to be talking about Biden's new executive order. But before that, I do want to take a quick break to tell you about Club Twit. Twit.tv slash Club Twit is where you go to join the club. $7 a month, $84 a year, you can become a member of Club Twit. When you do, you get some great stuff. Uh, first and foremost, you get that warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart, knowing that you are supporting the work that we do here at Twit. You are helping me continue to do these shows, invite on great guests uh, to have conversations about what's going on in tech, and you gain access to uh, ad-free content. You also get access to the Twit Plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else behind the scenes, before the show, after the show. Special Club Twit events get published there, including our recent escape room uh, experience. You also get access to the Club Twit Discord, a fun place to go to chat with your fellow Club Twit members and also those of us here at Twit. Plus, audio and video access to many shows that are exclusive, that are video exclusive on Club Twit, including uh, Hands on Mac and iOS Today, Hands on Windows, and uh, Home Theater Geeks, plus some other great shows. So please uh, consider signing up for Club Twit at twit.tv slash club twit. $7 a month, $84 a year. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. All righty, we are back from the break, and that means it's time for our next conversation. Uh, Biden announced uh, that he would be putting forth an executive order that is all about our personal information. Joining us to kind of help us understand what this executive order is about and what the impact might be is Carissa Bell from Engadget. Welcome back to the show, Carissa. Hey, it's good to be here. Great to have you. So let's get right into it. I was hoping, first and foremost, can you just tell us about President Biden's executive order, which countries are impacted and what types of information, uh, I guess you'll reveal this too, are barred from sale? Kind of what does that mean? Yeah, so it restricts the, the bulk sale of personal data to uh, Russia, China, North Korea, Cuba, Iran and Venezuela. Hmm. And it specifically targets um, data that, you know, a lot of us would think of as, as pretty sensitive geolocation, biometric, genomic, health, uh, financial, and, you know, some other types of uh, personally identifying information. 
Okay. So this, yeah, it's, it's just completely a ban on sharing all of that kind of very personal information with a specific list of countries or uh, allowing for the sale, disallowing for the sale of that information to a specific list of other countries. Now, um, the announcement, the actual press release from the White House said that uh, Biden will issue an executive order. And this was as of February 28th today, very rare day, February 29th, given that it's a leap year. Do you know, do we know when that order is set to go into effect? Has it been put into effect now? How does that work? So I don't think we quite know just yet when these new rules will take effect. Um, there's going to be a kind of a complex rulemaking process within the Department of Justice to try and figure out, you know, exactly how these rules will work. You know, if, the, you know, if there's carve outs, kind of what those should look like, they're going to engage, you know, I think some of the some of the industry in that process. So we don't know exactly um, when this will take effect, but this is sort of like them saying that this is, you know, their intention is to make this happen. And, you know, there's after, you know, they kind of go through some rounds of, comment and, and rulemaking, then we'll sort of see like the finalized version of this. Understood. Now, it it makes sense that uh, Biden's personal information, right, that uh, Biden's genomic information and uh, even something as simple as the emails that Biden is sending are a national security risk. You don't want China, Russia, Cuba, all these other places necessarily having access to that. For our listeners who might be going how does my data make a difference when it comes to national security? Can, can you talk about what that means and why we would maybe want to block the sale of all Americans' uh, personal data? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you have to put this kind of in the broader geopolitical context um, of our relationship with these countries right now, especially, you know, China and Russia. Um, we already know that they kind of access this, the government, you know, talk, talked about yesterday about how they, we already know that they access a lot of this type of data, either through data broker transactions or, you know, through hacking or kind of, kind of other means. And, you know, I think the, the concern is sort of not necessarily what they can do with any one person's information, mm -hmm. but, you know, when you buy these kind of large troves of data, you can, you know, find information about military personnel, um, activists, dissidents, uh, researchers, you know, people that, you know, the governments of these countries might, you know, have reason to target for like blackmail or um, espionage or, um, you know, mm -hmm. kind of other things that would be at odds with our, I guess, national security priorities. Understood. And in your piece, uh, you mentioned a Duke University study. I was hoping you could tell our listeners about that. It was really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, this is kind of an issue that a lot of researchers have been trying to raise the alarm about for a while. Um, and there's a group at, at Duke University that that put out something last year where they uh, basically, you know, sought out data brokers that were advertising that they had uh, a lot of information about, um, you know, veterans or, or military personnel and their families, um, which, you know, turned out was not that hard for them to find. And then they kind of posed as buyers to see, like, is there any kind of vetting process? You know, just how difficult is it to get this kind of, um, you know, pretty sensitive non-public data. And what they found was it was actually really easy and really cheap. Um, they posed as two different firms. One was like an, an American firm and one was as a foreign firm. And in both cases, a lot of these companies just kind of handed it over without asking any questions. Wow. Yeah, that's that's big. I mean, that 
clearly uh, suggests that it's it's quite easy for these countries to get this information. And as you pointed out, these were perhaps citizens who are a little bit more closely tied to national security than others might be. Now, you mentioned a little bit at the top uh, the enforcement process. I uh, hope you could kind of go into it a little bit more. Who, when, when, a, when the president puts forth an executive order, and in this case, the executive order barring the sale, what group is responsible for making sure that data brokers follow these rules? And do we have any information about what that will look like? Maybe even if we're just looking at precedent that, you know, when something involving tech in the past has been put through with an executive order, uh, how does this process kind of typically follow through? Yeah, it's a good question because I think that's kind of one of the biggest uh, question marks around, you know, sort of how effective how effective this will ultimately end up being is sort of how this enforcement process works. Um, I don't think we have the exact details. That's part of what the Department of Justice is kind of working on right now. They've said that broadly, they kind of want to model this after the way that the U.S. does sanctions policies. So the same way that businesses are kind of, you know, expected to have some basic uh, measures in place to make sure that they're not doing business with, um, you know, entities that are under U.S. sanctions, that they want uh, data brokers and other companies that kind of engage in these transactions to have a process in place where they're doing some kind of vetting, um, that they have some kind of uh, internal system to at least try and prevent, you know, um, sometimes the indirect sale of this data. Because, you know, one thing that happens is, you know, one group buys a bunch of data, then they resell it, and then, you know, on down the line, and it makes its way to a country. So they want to try and come up with kind of measures to put the onus on the companies that are holding this data to actually, you know, do a little bit of due diligence. We don't know exactly how that's going to work. I think it's kind of more to come as as they kind of go through this process. Now, one thing that I noticed about this is, as you pointed out, the announcement was made yesterday, and we don't know quite when it's going to go into effect, partly because of what you just explained, that it is a multi-step process, It you know what groups are going to be involved, what exactly it looks like, what carve-outs there are going to be. But for anyone who, for whatever reason, has... Uh, you know, has put in their email to get all of the press releases from the White House. And then anyone who watches this show, or maybe some some folks, I'm sure, especially the folks who watch our other show, Security Now, may already be aware of the fact that uh, our data is sold. Maybe they uh, read about that Duke University study. This is now an awareness, or maybe has been for some time, that people have that their personal information uh, may very well be being purchased by other countries and in some cases countries that politically speaking we're not on the best terms with and so there is a level of of kind of i don't know i guess what i'm getting at is there's a part of me that's a little bit um surprised maybe that this announcement was made because it draws attention to the fact that this is happening, but yet now there's going to be this period of time while we wait for these protections to come into place. So what's an individual to do, you know, knowing now that our information is being sold to other countries uh, or that is available for purchase in other countries, is there something that we should be doing as individuals to help keep ourselves uh, more safe and more private online? Yeah, it's a good question, you know, and I think um, there was some language in the press release that I think 
kind of suggests that they also want to draw attention to this issue more broadly. You know, the unfortunate reality is that the the data broker industry is, you know, it's a massive multi-billion dollar industry and it's largely unregulated. You know, there's some state level laws, um, but we don't have, you know, comprehensive uh, privacy laws in this country yet. There's been some, some attempts to do so. So, you know, up until now, there's been relatively few ways, um, you know, that these, there's been relatively few restrictions, you know, on these data brokers and, you know, what they can actually do with our data. Um, you know, in terms of what we can do as individuals, I think, you know, there's kind of what we might think of as like sort of privacy and security best practices, you know, um, don't give apps and services like permissions that they don't need, you know, be careful about where you're sharing your your personal information, um, you know, things like that. Uh, I think, you know, there, it's hard because a lot of this information is already out there and a lot of it, you know, we do have no control over, you know, for example, uh, credit card companies selling your selling transaction histories um, to data brokers. Uh, so, you know, I think you can educate yourself about how this happens and f- try and look out for companies that, you know, sort of have a better record on these issues. Um, there's also services that will kind of go through and and crawl data broker ba- databases for you and take out your, your information so it's not, you know, publicly viewable. Mm-hmm anymore. So there's, there's steps like that, but I think, you know, one of the the issues that, you know, this executive order highlights is that there's just so much already out there and that without kind of our, you know, government getting involved and actually putting some rules in place, a lot of this is going to keep going unchecked. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that is honestly where I celebrate that this is taking place because this is we, those of us who are paying attention, I've been paying attention for some time and are specifically working in this field, have known about data brokers and know the level of information that they collect and keep. And that, yes, there there was no way that little changes were ultimately going to make the difference necessary here, that this needed to come kind of from the top. Uh, so it's good that this is taking place overall when it comes to protecting our individual privacy. Um, And, you know, in a way, I will say it's a little bit of a shame that it kind of takes it being a national security risk for that to be the case. But all told, it is uh, a change that is positive for the individual consumer. Um, Carissa Bell, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to... uh, explain the executive order to us and for joining us today. Of course, folks can head over to Engadget.com to check out your work. Is there anywhere else they should go to follow along with what you're doing? Um, You know, I'm on social media. I'm on uh, Threads, Blue Sky, still on Twitter. Um, Same handle everywhere, Carissa B.E. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Alrighty, folks. Up next, my final story of the week. My final story of the week in just a moment. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. All righty. For those of you out there who are, you know, perhaps concerned about your security at home or just see other people who uh, have video doorbells and you're thinking about getting one yourself, uh, I wanted to point to a really important report, a sort of study from Consumer Reports that is... Happens to be by Stacey Higginbotham, for one, uh, who, if you are not aware, is a former host of This Week in Google and a longtime IoT journalist. Uh, And it's all about video doorbells. These video doorbells are apparently for sale on many different online online stores. So Walmart, Sears, Amazon have these video doorbells for sale and they have really, really bad security. Now they don't cost a whole lot of money and particularly on Amazon, they may show up as a sort of promoted item or an item that has a good um, recommendation. And because of that, they may be something that people are interested in purchasing. These doorbells, though, do not encrypt a lot of the information that's exchanged between them and the sort of app and server that they commu- with which they communicate. Uh, the doorbells are made by, or they're sold under two brand names called Eakin. E-K-E-N and Tuck, T-U-C-K. And they are, along with 10 other video doorbells that are out there that are kind of, they almost look exactly identical. They're all controlled by an app called A-I-W-I-T. I don't even know how to begin to pronounce that. Uh, A-I-W-I-T is the app that it's used, and the app is owned by Eakin, the E-K-E-N. Um as I mentioned, there were 10 other brands, right? The Consumer Reports team purchased one that was sold under the name Fishbot and another one uh, called Rake Blue. Again, what? <laughs> these brand names are just ridiculous. But uh, these doorbells were the security or the lack of security resulted in uh, Stacey Higginbotham actually kind of having her home exposed by a colleague who was able to access images from the doorbell camera while being nearly 3,000 miles away. And the way that uh, this happened is, and they don't explain the exact method by which you use this information, but I will say that it is clear to me that if you have the uh, app and you have the serial number of the device, then that's all you need 
to be able to get snapshots of what the doorbell is seeing. You can't get full video, but you can see uh, snapshots. You can get full video if you have physical access to the device. And given that it's a doorbell camera, you, you kind of everybody has to have physical access to the device, right? All you need to do is have the app. You walk up to the doorbell and you press and hold the doorbell button to put the doorbell into pairing mode. And then you pair it with your app. And then suddenly the person who owns it does not have access to this doorbell anymore. The good thing, if there's anything that's good about it that can be said, is that the doorbell, uh, if the pairing changes, you do at least get an email. So the person who kind of owned the doorbell and had it paired in the first place, you get an email saying that it's been paired with a new person. So that part, at least you would be aware of it. You could go and then repair it yourself. That's just annoying. (laughs) However, even without ever alerting the other person, if you have the serial number, which is on the device, then you can see snapshots from the device without the other person ever being aware of it. So if you can imagine, this is suddenly a device that is completely um, accessible without the person being alerted and can continue to be accessed from there. Uh, On top of that, unencrypted personal information is sent through uh, the network traffic. And so the person's uh, Wi-Fi ID, their SSID as it's called, and the person's personal IP address are both sent over the network unencrypted. So that information could be, if, if you know someone was able to grab the data, they would be able to see uh, the person's home IP and their uh, Wi-Fi name, which on its own is not necessarily going to be enough to do anything. But with that information, somebody who's a little bit more sophisticated could potentially do more. And especially if you're using uh, a common router and you've not changed the Wi-Fi password on it, it becomes very easy to do so. Now, as uh, I mentioned, there are many, many, many different brands that are selling the same doorbell camera. Uh, it is clearly made by one manufacturer and then multiple people, multiple people, multiple companies sort of take it and rebrand it exactly as they need to. Um, there were 4,200 listings uh, of the the Eakin and Tuck versions of the product in January of this year. Um, Amazon, Walmart, Sears, Shine, and Timu, or Temu, I can't remember how that one's pronounced, all were alerted by consumer reports that this device had issues. Um, Temu said that they reviewed CR's findings and that they'd removed all of the video doorbells that use the AIWIT app. Um, Walmart said that it would do something about it. Don't know if they did. And Amazon Sears and Shine did not respond to uh, questions from the journalists. Unfortunately, as of the end of February, that's now as we record this show, most of those 
Video doorbells were still available for sale on those many retailers' websites. Uh, another thing that was kind of unfortunate <laughs> is that on top of those security vulnerabilities that we talked about before, one thing that is necessary for a product to be sold in the United States is that there have to be special FCC identifiers visible to consumers. You need to be able to see the FCC identification. Uh, it's a special code. You can look it up in the FCC database to make sure that it is okay to use and that it won't cause you harm because the radio frequencies are too strong. Those records were, or those identifiers were not um, visible to consumers. So by default, they are illegal for sale in the United States. But on top of that, um, there were some records of the devices, but not records of all of the devices. In any case, though, as I just said, you have to have that uh, FCC code identifier available somewhere for the consumer to see. Otherwise, the product is not legal to be sold in the United States. When it comes to these uh, doorbells, I mentioned that uh, oftentimes it can be a device that is recommended. The Consumer Reports document says that Amazon highlights it as Amazon's choice for overall pick. Now, I, as a person who <laughs> work in this field and have, you know, uh, gathered and gathered an understanding about how Amazon goes about rating these devices in some cases and doesn't in others. I know that the Amazon's choice is something that I should never take at face value. But many a consumer will see that badge and consider it to mean that it's something that is kind of blessed, that it is a product that is uh, going to be better than others. And it's unfortunate because in many ways and in many cases, these different badges are just automatically generated based on how many times people have uh, found this product, how many times people have maybe purchased the product. It's, it's all kind of algorithmic. And so what I find it's important to do is if you ever see that Amazon's Choice badge, look at the Amazon's Choice badge and then look what it says to the right of it. Because let's say I was looking for a um, a silicone um, floor mat for my dog's food and water, right? I, would, I want a mat that I can put on the floor that I can put the dog's food and the water on top of. And I do a search and I come across a uh, green silicone floor mat in the shape of a uh, dog bone. And so I click on it and it has that Amazon badge next to it that says Amazon's choice. In the text to the right, I might see something that says Amazon's choice for floor mats that are shaped like dog bones that are green. And so it's such a specific thing that, of course, the one product that is green and shaped like a bone is going to be Amazon's choice because that's the one thing that people can find. If they typed in the words um, green dog bone shaped floor mat, <laughs> then yeah, that that's going to end up being the product that people are buying and 
in many cases not returning if that's exactly what they wanted. So then that Amazon's choice label can get assigned. My point is, make sure you pay attention to the context. Now, it is bad in this case that it wasn't only Amazon's choice, but the text next to it said overall pick. That means that it is a well-rated, well-priced product that enough people have purchased uh, and not returned or gave a poor review to that they continue to buy it. But it's likely the case that many of the people purchasing this aren't aware of the security flaws that the device has. So ultimately, my advice to you in this case is to do your research. And if you don't feel like you can do your research Pass off that research to someone else. It could be a publication. Uh, maybe you go to Consumer Reports. Maybe you go to the Wirecutter. Maybe you go to your favorite uh, tech site and see what they've said about the best doorbell cameras. And that you maybe lean your bias toward a more established company when it comes to purchasing these kinds of products. That... Instead of buying a no-name device that has a really good price, you go, okay, I'm going to invest a little bit more money because I don't want someone 3,000 miles away to be able to look in and see what I'm doing in my home. So I'm going to leave it at that. There's a lot more to read uh, in this Consumer Reports piece, and I think Stacey Higginbotham deserves all of the clicks and all of the views from all of you out there. So please go check out the full article about it to get the full scoop on it. Um, but there's a little bit of insight uh, into these video doorbells that have security issues. Contact your family and your friends and make sure none of them have purchased these cameras because they're not good. They're not good. All right, folks, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode of Tech News Weekly. This show publishes every Thursday at twit.tv slash TNW. So you can head there to subscribe to the show in audio and video formats. There are a couple of buttons, subscribe to audio, subscribe to video. And I mentioned Club Twit before, so I won't go into all of the details. I'll just say head to twit.tv slash Club Twit, $7 a month, $84 a year. Join the club, and we appreciate it. Uh, we we appreciate all of you for doing that. If you'd like to follow me online, I'm at Micah Sargent, or you can head to chihuahua.coffee, that's C-H-I-H-U-A-H-U-A.coffee, where I've got links to the many places I'm active online. Uh, you can check out later today, iOS Today and Hands-On Mac, uh, both shows that I do here on the Twit Network in the club. And of course, you can check out on Sundays, Ask the Tech Guys, which I co-host with Leo Laporte, where we take your questions live on air, your tech questions live on air, and do our best to answer them. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I will see you again next week for another episode of Tech News Weekly. Uh, next week, we'll have Abrar Alhiti as my guest co-host. Until then, bye-bye.